If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give him a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Davy Crockett. Let's get caught up. In the last episode, we learned about the white sticks and the red sticks, followed by the horrific potato incident. We also learned that Crockett calls President Andrew Jackson Andy. And we finished with Crockett heading to Congress after having the epiphany that class matters. And if he wanted to get something done, he needed to have some of that class. In this episode... Crockett has some amazing stories for us, as well as why he no longer drinks to excess and what he's expecting when he goes to Texas. And then you had also mentioned a little earlier, you had said that one of the things that you learned is that class matters, which brings us to you just referenced justice a minute ago. And is this how you got involved in Congress? Because, am I on the right track here? (laughs) Well, to say that my morals got me to Congress, I would say you're about 50-50. The other 50 you don't rightly know about. All right, I'm ready uh, (laughs) Well, you see, I happen to have for a long time, I used to bear the name of one of those poor, helpless, unfortunates that's called a candidate. Whether it be a candidate for the Tennessee State Legislature or for a congressman. Now, in 1817, I had already been married to my second wife, Elizabeth Patton, for a while now. And, you know, I tell you, how that woman puts up with me, I don't know, because I'm going to Congress for a good part of the year. And when I'm home, I'm either out hunting or exploring new territory. So the fact that she stays with me this whole time, she's a trooper, I guarantee it. But when we moved there to Lawrence County in 1817, why... Folks already started kind of taking to pointing me out for the fact of the matter that I was a good bear hunter and the fact that I was a veteran of the Creek War. Now, just because of that, they went ahead and decided to make me magistrate, so to speak. And I say just because of that, obviously, there's a lot more politics involved in such things as that. But they went ahead and made me a magistrate of that district. Now, it's important to note that at the time, I had maybe only six months of schooling. And when I first took the job of magistrate, why, it was the easiest thing in the world. I actually enjoyed the job for the fact of the matter is that if I needed to serve a warrant on somebody, well, I could just tell my deputy, hey, you go out to such and such a farm and you bring him back here so we can go ahead and find him, arrest him, whatever, things like that. But the more folks that come moving out into that area, well, they wanted to start having documentation. And so they wanted me to start writing out documents and writing out my name to the documents as well. But I wish I may be shot if that weren't my huckleberry above my persimmon, for it was already difficult enough for me to write my name. But to write the warrants as well, forget about it. But I reckon I did a good enough job for a few years afterwards. Some folks, I can't say as to whether or not they should be put in an asylum, they start going ahead and taking the dumb fool notion that I would have been a good representative for their district and the Tennessee State Legislature. I didn't think too much about it. As a matter of fact, there was a fellow who lived in my neighborhood, and he told me that he was the only one 
running opposed to me since I've been elected as a candidate. And I said, all right, well, that's fine. May the best man win. Well, we have these meetings here called stump speakings, which is when everybody has a nice barbecue and they get together and they go ahead and give their speech and their platform and let their political ideas be known. Well, when I got there to this barbecue that my opponent had invited me to, well, he told me that he was not the only one running against me. He told me that his son was also running against me. And that's when I figured out that he was trying to go ahead and pad his pockets because win or lose, one way or the other, the notoriety and the money is going to be coming into his family. Well, that's when my pin feathers got ruffled because I realized I'd been taken for a fool, I guess maybe because of my lack of education. So then I told him, I said, sir, you've made a powerful enemy because now I'm going to run against you with everything I got. Well, that very same night, I went ahead and made my intentions clear that I was, in fact, going to run for Tennessee State Legislature. And the fact of the matter is that I didn't know nothing at all about politics, but I did know the folks in the woods in them. And if they saw fit for me to go ahead and represent them up in Nashville, I'd go ahead and represent them as honestly as I could. And that's when I started my own brand of politicking. I had my wife make me a buckskin jacket with two great big pockets on the inside of it. And in one pocket, I'd put in a nice bottle of whiskey, and in the other, I'd put in a twist of tobacco. Now, whenever I come across someone as I was out politicking, if I met them, I'd go ahead and offer them a drink of tobacco, drink of whiskey. And naturally, if he had a chaw in his mouth, he'd have to take the chaw out so he could take a drink. And after he finished his drink, I'd out with my twist of tobacco, and I'd hand it over to him so he could take a chaw. Now, some folks might call this bribing. But it wasn't bribing because the whole time the fellow was either drinking or chewing, I'd go ahead and I'd let my platform be known to him. And I'd say, well, sir, regardless of whether or not I get your vote, it's been nice talking to you. And I also made sure that I had plenty of whiskey and tobacco because that kind of helped to sweeten the deal as to whether or not I might have got their votes. You know what I'm saying? Definitely wouldn't call this bribing. I'd call this smart. Well, indeed. So because the fact of the matter that Whenever I found a person, I left them in as first rate of humor as I ever found them. Well, I think it might have sweetened the pot to me getting elected to Tennessee State Legislature. Gosh, that's incredible. It really is. So when you first got into, as you went further up the ranks and you become a congressman, what was the thing that you noticed about politics? I mean, was it what you expected? Was it dirtier than what you expected? Was it... Were the people easier to manipulate than you expected? I mean, what was your experience? Well, I'd say them folks ain't as dirty as I expected. Of course, then again, I come from the backwoods, and I only take a bath maybe once a week. They're <laughs> a lot cleaner than I am. No, but no honesty, I would have to say that those folks are very easily manipulated, and a lot of them, they, uh, they tend to be pretty underhanded in a lot of their deals. So much so to the fact of the matter is that I recall in one of my last years of serving that we actually had a bill come up on the floor of Congress. And this bill was to go ahead and raise a certain amount of funds to raise a relief fund for a poor widow of one of our recent senators. Now, the bill was fine, and the amount of money that they was trying to raise for that poor widow, that was fine as well. But what I couldn't abide by was the fact of the matter is that they was trying to go ahead and pass the bill to where if they wanted to go ahead and get the money to raise the funds for, 
then they was going to take it out of the public's pocket, not Congress's pocket. And so I stood up on the floor of Congress, and I told everybody, I said, let me tell you something. We have as much of a right as anyone to spend as much money as we want to out of our own pockets, but we do not have the right to spend one dollar of the public's money, for it is not yours to give. And when I told them that, by hook and by crook, the vote come the bill come up for a vote again. And when it come up for a vote again, thinking that the bill would pass unanimously, I was surprised to find out the fact of the matter is that my words had swayed them so much that they would not actually vote for that bill and that they would actually go ahead and pay the bill with their own money that they had gotten from being actual congressmen. So I convinced them that it was not actually a good thing to do to go ahead and try and relieve someone or aid in someone's charity through the public's money. But worse than all, I found out through my time in politics that there are no bloodsuckers worse than politics because they're all bloodsuckers. There ain't no ticks like them, I guarantee it. Is that right? You know, that speech that you were just mentioning, I read a little bit about that. They call that your not yours to give speech, and it's so interesting because you're right. If that's the public's money, how can they choose to give that to whoever they want to? I mean, if they want to give their own money, that's one thing, but the public's money, it's like you're saying, it's not yours to give. I mean, everybody wants to help the next person, but you want to help them with your own money. That's Indeed. It's an, and so they actually did change the way that they thought about it. They did change it, and I told them, as a matter of fact, that if we went ahead and each took off, and I offered this myself, I'd offer to go ahead and put up a whole week's worth of my pay to go ahead and support this charitable cause for this widow here, and that if every other member of Congress was willing to go ahead and put up a week's worth of his pay as well, then we would not only have the money we needed for the relief fund, but we go ahead and at least triple that amount of money. So why in the world would we dip into the public's money when we are the public servants? It makes complete sense. I mean, that's why you got things done. In when you were in Congress, were there was there anything that happened? I mean, I'm guessing Congress. You spent a lot of time in rooms talking and yelling back and forth. And were there any events that happened that just stand out above the other? Like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. You know, just any, something like that. Well. Needless to say, the president's engine bill, that was unbelievable. I couldn't believe that these people were idiots enough to go ahead and vote for it and get it passed. Is that the Indian Removal Act? Yes, sir. That is, in fact, the Indian Removal Act. But uh, I do mind this one time. This was right before I actually left Congress for the last time. And a few months back, we was actually attending a funeral for a deceased representative of the state of South Carolina, Warren Davis. And as we was coming out of the funeral service, well, there comes this guy walking up to us all, and he's dressed rather fancy. I don't know. I guess he must have been dressed like he is a king or something like that. But he comes up there, and he pulls out a pistol and points it right at Andrew Jackson. And he pulls the trigger, and the gun misfires. Well, then he pulls out another pistol, the gun misfires as well. Well, at that point, everybody's in an uproar thinking the president's about to be shot, and me and a few other of my constituents 
we went ahead and we grabbed a hold of him as quick as we could. And we was going to try and subdue him, but Jackson, he said, no, let me have him. And he started beating the man within an inch of his life with his own cane. That man, I believe his name was Richard Lawson. And they tell me he's crazy. Believed he was Richard III or something like that. But he believed that God had told him to actually kill Andrew Jackson so he could set himself up as the king of America. Wow. And so yes. you may have saved Andrew Jackson, Andy Jackson, you may have saved him from an assassination? Well, yes, sir. I do believe that between the guns and myself and a few other constituents who had the gall to act, why, we went ahead and saved his life. Now, obviously, I'm an opponent of his, but I don't believe in a man's life being taken unnecessarily. Not if I can help it, that is. I will say this, to backtrack a bit, if you will, that during the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, which I was not a part of, but I did hear about this, is that during the fighting, Andrew Jackson had actually got knocked off his horse. And there was this Creek warrior who was actually getting ready to go ahead and bash his head in with a tomahawk. Well, one of Jackson's Cherokee allies, he actually comes up out of nowhere, tackles the Creek to the ground and kills him. And he saved Jackson's life in such a manner. Now look where it got him. Because that very same man is now out in the Oklahoma Territory with his people in a land facing off against the other tribes that they don't know about. And I turned around and I'd done the same thing and look at where it's got me. So I think I might be siding with that there Cherokee friend of Jackson's. And the fact of the matter is that if I'd know what was going to happen, I might not have saved his life at all. Boy, it appears that there's a lot of people that wish they hadn't stood in front of a bullet for Andrew Jackson. Seems like about the only person who was willing to stand in front of a bullet for him was the man himself. Wow, that is, that's amazing. That really is incredible. I understand there was a biography written about you, or not written about oh. you, an autobiography that you wrote. Is that correct? Well, yes, sir. There's an autobiography written about me. There's also a biography written about me, which I actually, when I found out about it, I got kind of nettled at because these people start getting dates and names and places all wrong, and they started telling my story like they knowed which end of an engine to scalp, which they clearly didn't. So I went ahead and decided to set the record straight, and I had a friend of mine help me to actually go ahead, and uh, I'd narrate everything to him, and he'd write it down, and then he'd send it off to publishing, and finally, once everybody could actually read what in the world I was saying, well, then we actually released it to, to the, uh, the public, and that's how my autobiography come out, called A Narrative of the Life and Times of David Crockett in Tennessee. So somebody wrote, before your autobiography, somebody wrote the story of you, and it wasn't correct? Yes. That's what you're saying? It wasn't correct. He hit on a few things that were right, but he didn't know everything. And if folks were going to go ahead and start you know, poking fun at me or making a national legend of me one way or the other, I was going to let them know what the truth was. So, in our time, you are kind of a, a national legend, a folk hero, something like that. I mean, that's, like I said, there are just stories and stories upon, about you and your life and the things that you did in your time. I mean, were you like a, I don't know, like a star? I mean, you would appear in a place and people would be excited to see you? Is that the way it was? Well, it couldn't be a star considering they're up in the sky, but I did become kind of a celebrity, and... 
some folks did. They started taking to pointing me out and things like that and asking for my autograph. As a matter of fact, there was a few points that I actually went on tour. But it wasn't really until 1834 that this James Spalding fella, he actually wrote a play called Line of the West. And this caricature, his name was Nimrod Wildfire. He was played by the actor James Hackett. And James Hackett, I have to say, he done a fairly good job if you consider the stories and the tall tales that have sprouted up about me to be true. For he had me wrestling a regiment of wildcats and toting a steamboat on my back and riding a lightning bolt and things like that. I even made claim to the fact that I had killed a bear when I was only three years old. <laughs> now, I like to joke with folks from time to time, and they come up to me asking for my autograph and asking a few questions. They say, well, you know, Mr. Crockett, is it true you actually killed a bear when you was only three? And I tell them, I said, well, quite frankly, it's been some time. I could have been two. I could have been four. I don't rightly recall. Oh, that is such a better answer than yes or no. Well, sir, I tell you, though, folks have taken and pointed me out, and it's all because of that play. And then after that play gained a lot of popularity, they come out with these things they call Crockett Almanacs, which just kind of muddles up the situation a whole lot more. And they got all these stories about me going to the Rocky Mountains and such when I ain't never been west of the old Mississippi. So I don't know how I would have gotten there. But I guess the notoriety is nice. I will say that. It has to be a lot of fun to read these almanacs so that you can learn about all the things that you've done. Well, I'll never forget the first time a person ever come up to me, and he had one of them almanacs bearing my name. And he come up to me and he said, Mr. Crockett, I'd like for you to read a few pages of this and get your opinion on that. And when I read it and I saw all the claims that they had put in it about the adventures I'd done, like, you know, riding alligators up from New Orleans all the way back to Tennessee and such, I looked at him and I just asked him one question. I said, I did all that? <laughs> so, so let me mark this down. Never rode alligators. Is that right? No, I never rode alligators. I've seen a few of them before when I was down there in the swamps and whatnot, but trust me, you want to... Avoid them things as much as possible, I guarantee it. Have you ever hunted or eat, eaten alligator? No, I have eaten alligator before. Never really made too much of a point to actually go hunting after them. Mostly, where I live at, most of my life, I'm not in any swamps where gators are. It wasn't until I actually fought in the Creek Ward that I actually entered the territory where a lot of these gators were, up and down the rivers and swamps and creeks and whatnot. So I never hunted them, but I have eaten the gator meat a time or two. And I will say this. It tastes like if you went ahead and roasted some chicken, but it's a lot more chewy. I don't know if meat should be described as chewy. You know what I mean? Well, I tell you, it all depends, I guess, on how old the animal is, whether it's a male or a female or how it's cooked. Because yeah. I've had some good bear. I've had some bad bear. I've had some good deer, and I've had some bad deer. So it depends on... Whether it's a male or female, and depends on how it's cooked. Are you comfortable being a celebrity? Well, I won't say that I don't like it, but I also won't say that I like it. Because here I am now, you know, trying to enjoy my quiet time ever since I lost my last bid for re-election. And there's been folks who have gone out of their way to actually come out to my neck of the woods just so they could see me and possibly participate on the bear hunt. So it is nice, the attention, but at the same time, when I can't even 
go out into the front yard and take a leap from a cabin door, why, well, that gets a little bothersome because you don't know who's going to be popping around the corner. I guess like anything, there's a good side to it and there's a bad side to it. So you have a lot of people that are chasing you down and want you to, well, I shouldn't say chasing you down, but are trying to get you to take them on a bear hunt or some sort of hunting. Have you had any like super interesting stories about that? Anything that's been interesting? Well, there was this one time I do recall that there was these three fellows who'd come all the way out from east just to go ahead and try and have a bear hunt with me. And so I told them, well, give me a second. I'll get my my hunting frock on, and I'll get the dogs up, and we'll head on down to the river, and we'll find a ferry, and we'll get on down to some good hunting spots that I know of. Well, we stopped off at the first landing, and there wasn't nothing there. Then we go down to the second landing, still nothing there. And finally, we got to the third, and I seen some tracks. And that's when I told them, I said, y'all just stay here on the boat and just wait for me. I'll go ahead and I'll take a look and see if there's anything to these tracks. Well, I started walking further and further inland, following these tracks for those as fresh as the pure-driven snow. Well, finally, I see this deer, maybe about 50 yards away. So I'm up with old Betsy, and I take a shot, and down she goes. Well, I just begin the process of butchering her, and then I saw another deer about maybe 50, 60 yards distant, and I shot him. Now, the people that asked you to take them hunting, they're not with you right now, right? They're in the boat? They're not with me. I I must say I I was a bit of a hog on that hunt because as soon as I got off off the boat and got on the land, why, all the animals went ahead presenting themselves to my rifle, and I didn't even think about calling back for them folks to come out and hunt. So uh, I got out there, and I shot them two deer, and I stored them both up in a tree so I could come back and get them. Well, then I keep on walking a little bit further in, and I see this bear. Well, I go ahead and I shoot that, and after a few yards of trailing it, I find its body, and I start butchering it, and then I heard a crackling through the brush, and I looked, and there was this bear heading into a cane break. So I left that bear behind, and I got maybe within about 15 yards of it because the cane break was so thick it couldn't hardly notice me coming in. So I got within about 15 yards of it, and that's when I shot, and the bear went a few yards further into the cane break, and that's when I saw it laying there. Well, I crawled up to it, and when I did, I got ready to start butchering it, but I heard a growl from behind the bear. Well, I'm going to go ahead and tell you something. If you hear a growl coming from what appears to be the bear, you back up right quick, and I'm glad I did. For that's when I saw an old panther just sitting there chawing on the hindquarters, and I decided to go ahead and let him have the meal. So I let that one bear retreat out of the cane breaks, and I went ahead and butchered that other bear, and went back and set it up in the tree with them other two deer and hollered off the riverbank as soon as I got back for them other three fellows to come join me and haul the game on back to the boat. And then afterwards, we went on down a little bit further down the river, and that's when I actually introduced them to a bit of good hunting, and they was each able to take a, it was a two deer and one bear per person. So one person, he got one deer, the other person got another deer, and the other person got a bear. And I guess that satisfied their curiosity as to how a hunt goes with Colonel Crockett. Why didn't you shoot the panther? Well, you see, when I went ahead and pursued that bear, my rifle was already loaded. But I pursued it into the cane break, where it's so thick, and if you ain't careful, them cane breaks will snatch your knife out of your belt and you won't even notice it. So, much less trying to go ahead and load a rifle, that's almost an impossible task in them cane breaks. 
So I went ahead, and after I shot that bear, I started tracking it. And when I found it, I laid my rifle off to the side. And when I saw that painter, I realized, oh, no, my rifle is unloaded. So I'm going to go ahead and just grab my rifle, leave that painter be, and just back on out. I see. You were about one step from being the hunted instead of the hunter. There is a very good possibility it could have went that way. Yeah. Gosh. All right, so let me go back to the time in Congress for a minute. You have mentioned several times you had talked about the the Indian Removal Act or bill or whichever it's called. Yes. How did that come about? Because at this point, it seems like you know that this is wrong. You don't want to treat the Native Americans poorly. And now they're passing this bill that is just removing everybody from their land and going to do some terrible things. What did you try to do? Did you try to stop it? Did you have any luck stopping it? What happened? Well, I'll tell you, unlike some folks have thought, I was not the only person on the floor of Congress to actually oppose that bill. In fact, some of the folks from the northern states, why they opposed the bill just as much as I did. But we were obviously outnumbered in our endeavor to go ahead and keep the bill from being passed. I was, however, the only person from my district and possibly the only person from the state of Tennessee who actually opposed this bill that Andy Jackson had proposed. Now, at one point, I did get up on the floor of Congress, and I told them, I said, if I should be the only member of the House who voted against the bill and the only man in the United States who disapproved it, I'd still vote against it, and it would be a matter of rejoicing till the day I die that I had given the vote. Now, despite me speaking out strong, well, <laughs> it didn't amount to much. For there were others who was opposed to the bill that they spoke out strong as well. Not only did Jackson and his friends and colleagues, they wanted to go ahead and remove the engines off their lands as much as they could, you know, to go ahead and increase the land that they had for their plantations and therefore increase the crops and the money they get. But a few years before that, down in Georgia, there was a little bit of gold that was found down in there. Now, there wasn't a lot of gold. It wasn't nothing to sneeze at, but it wasn't nothing to get worked up over. But this gold was found down in Georgia, and after that was found, everybody went crazy trying to figure out where to go, how to get as much as they could, and started disrupting the Cherokee and the Chickasaw and all the other Native Americans who lived there about from their hunting and from their way of livelihood. All of that because they thought that they could try and get some gold and try and get rich quick. Excuse me, sir. But uh, I reckon that old Indian saying is pretty true about the fact that gold is the rock that makes all the white men mad. But that's exactly what happened. Because they swarmed in there by the hundreds, if not the thousands, all there trying to find the gold. Well, when Andrew Jackson figured out that there was a possibility for more riches, and there was also a possibility to make his friends richer and also to get rid of the Native Americans... So he could go ahead and get them off the land so he could expand his plantations and the plantations of his friends. Why, that's when the bill actually became a pressing matter. See, he'd already been trying to get something passed similar to it beforehand, but there wasn't the right precedence to go ahead and propose that bill on the floor of Congress. But this here gold rush in Georgia was exactly the catalyst he needed to go ahead and try and put that bill on the floor of Congress. And needless to say, sir, it has passed. And the world has been poor for it. I didn't know that had anything to do with gold, but I got to tell you, this is the history of mankind. 
where the Native Americans said that gold makes white people crazy. I mean, seriously, people will do anything for a dollar, and they'll do anything times ten if there's gold somewhere. Well, they'll do anything for a dollar, all right. Just take me. I had dumb fool notion to go to Congress just so I could get a little bit extra money in my pocket. Did you like being in Congress? It was all right. I did what I could. Now, one of the worst things that I hated was the hypocrisy of everything, you know, and I did learn some valuable things while I was there. I will say that. I learned how to dress to a certain extent. I learned which fork to use at the table. I learned how to speak in polite company and things like that. But I will say this, despite all my time in Congress or legislature or so on, I never learned how to lie, and I never learned how to abandon my morals. And that was one of the biggest things that folks kept badgering me about, especially when I spoke out against the president's engine bill or when I spoke out against the Congress trying to misappropriate funds from the public for a charity. I could not follow or go there. It's a matter of the head, not the heart, which is the most sensible thing you're going to do. You're going to do what's in your head. And so I could not let Congress go ahead and misappropriate the public's money, and I could not let the government try and misplace people who have been living here hundreds if not thousands of years before us. And so that's one of the biggest things I always hated is that as long as you agree with them, they'll be your friend. But the moment you slip up and you oppose them in any way, shape, or form, they'll discredit you to no end. As a matter of fact, when I opposed the president's engine bill, why the newspapers and the press, they took to reporting that I was a drunkard, that I was going ahead and having affairs with other women as opposed to my wife and things like that, I'm here to tell you there ain't no truth to that, not one bit. Now, I did used to be a drunkard, I will say that, so there's some ring of truth to that. But I realized that the more and more I kept on drinking, the closer I was to becoming like my father, which is the last thing I wanted to be like in the world. So that's when I determined to go ahead, and I cut back my drinking. Now, I will take in some spirits every now and then if the occasion calls for it, but I'll never get to drinking to the point of excess ever again. Did Andrew Jackson, did he bring you down because you didn't agree with him? Oh, most definitely. As a matter of fact, he was one of the very one of the very first people to actually go ahead and try and discredit me through the newspapers. And ever since then, obviously up until my last bid for re-election, well, he went ahead and had as many hand-picked candidates as he could to oppose me for my re-election to Congress. My last candidate was a veteran of the Creek War. His name was Adam Huntsman, and he had lost uh, his right leg. And... I guess, you know, folks, they like war heroes. I guess it don't matter the fact that I served in the Creek War myself. The fact that I opposed Andy Jackson, well, that just made it a whole null point. But because Adam Huntsman, he was a veteran of the Creek War, and he had the battle scars to prove it, why, naturally, the folks, they're going to tend to vote for him more than they will for me. The person who's in the pocket of Jackson as opposed to the person who's got good common sense. But I will say this, sir, and that is the fact of the matter, that I do not have a collar around my neck marked property of Andrew Jackson. <laughs> and I will not come or go, fetch or carry at the whistle of some other master. Definitely not Andrew Jackson. Did, was there ever a time where it seemed like throughout your, your life that you and him just were never aligned? And was there ever a time where you got along with him or you respected him? Or? Well... During the first portion of the Creek War, when I first started serving under him, 
I will say that I actually did consider myself lucky to have him for a general. I thought if there was a man to follow to hell and back, he'd be the one. But after Tallusahatchee and then Talladega, I started to realize that things weren't all they'd cracked up to be. And needless to say, when I started getting into politics and I realized the true nature of the man, well, I wouldn't follow him to the outhouse, much less to hell and back. You'd mentioned your father, and we hadn't talked about your family at all. You said that you didn't want to grow up to be like your father. Did your father not teach you to hunt and how to be an outdoorsman? Well, my father did teach me to hunt, and he tried to teach me to be an outdoorsman to some extent. As a matter of fact, when I was old enough to shoulder his rifle, he'd give me enough powder and ball for one shot. And he'd send me off every day, and he'd tell me to go ahead and make sure I brought back something for the dinner table. But there was a few a few stipulations that come with me bearing his rifle. One of them was the fact that if I come back home with nothing at all, whether I had shot the rifle or no, then I was to go to bed hungry. And if I had shot at something and still didn't bring it back home, I was going to go ahead and go to bed hungry anyhow. So there was one evening I recalled mind that I was out hunting, and as I'm walking through the woods, I hear this crackling through the brush in front of me. And I look, and it's just this little old bear cub. Well, I didn't think too much of it. I thought, well, this is a pretty sight. How often do you get to see a little baby bear? But then I heard a noise in the brush behind me, and I turned around and look, and it's old mama bear. And she ain't none too happy. She thinks I'm about to go ahead and try and hurt her child. So I went ahead and up with my rifle real quick, and I shot as quick as I could and then took off running until finally I was out of sight, out of mind. And I finally got back to the tavern, and my pa, he asked me, he said, well, son, did you see anything? Well, yes, sir. Did you shoot at anything? Yes, sir. Did you kill anything? No, sir. I said, all right, you know the deal. You got to go to bed hungry. But before I went to bed, he told me, don't take it so hard. He said, almost everyone who starts off hunting, especially the younger folks, well, they're going to do exactly what you just done. From now on, make two things perfectly clear in your mind. If you're out there in the woods and you see a baby bear, get out of there right quick because mama's close behind and she don't like anybody being close to her kids. The second thing being is that when you get ready to take a shot, you go ahead and you take your time. Be smooth with it. Don't jerk the trigger. Pull the trigger easily on back before you shoot. In other words, he was telling me to go ahead and be sure I was right before I went ahead. And I think in my own way I interpreted it to one of my lifelong mottos, which stands with me to my dying day, I reckon. And that is, first be sure you're right, then go ahead. Now, I have given my Paul a glowing review, I will say that. But he did, by the time we opened up the tavern in Morristown, him being a poor man as he was, he hired out me and some of my brothers quite a bit to other folks some complete strangers, to go ahead and work off his debts. And worse than that, when he opened up the tavern, him having easy access to whiskey and strong spirits and the like, why, he was drinking on a regular basis, to the point of where he'd become an alcoholic and was known to beat up on my mother, as well as trying to go ahead and beat up on me and my brothers and sisters. Oh, so I don't have too much love for the man in that respect. What did you do when he was beating up on your sisters and your mother? We did what we could. 
But you got to think to yourself, my Paul, he's, at this point, he's in his 30s, 40s, and he's a pretty strong fella, living a hard life for years on end, chopping wood and things like that. He's a strong fella. Oh, I see. You're and not only that, but no, not only that, but he served in the Revolutionary War. What what would we look like if we went ahead and beat up on our Paul, who was a veteran of the Revolutionary War, where we got our freedom? He was in the Revolutionary War? Yes, sir, he was. I wonder if that affected him that maybe caused the drinking. You know, a lot of people don't recover from war very easily. There is a possibility, sir. I will say that I took to drinking a little bit more in the years following the Creek War, or at least my part in it. But I also did start to drink more when I was in Congress because the fine spirits, they was more available there. <laughs> but at the same time, I would say that going ahead and trying to make deals and willing to deal with her on the floor of Congress or at fancy parties is twice as tough as fighting engines and ain't half the fun. So naturally, <laughs> you're going to want to drink more. Well, the spirits were more available in Congress because they were in your jacket. Well, that might be part of the story there. <clears throat> Nothing that I'd like to put in the newspapers, mind you. Yeah, I understand. So I had heard once that your dad was so much in debt that he basically gave – I don't know if my wording's right here, but he gave you to somebody so that you were going to, as an indentured servant or something like that. Is, can you tell me – is any of that true? Well, you missed the mark on one note, and that is the fact of the matter is it wasn't one time. It happened multiple times. Oh. Yes. When I was about 10 years old, my Paul, he was always in debt, and he was trying to figure his way out of it as best he could. Well, he went ahead, and he hired me out as a bound boy, an indentured servant, this old Dutchman named Jacob Siler, who was a cattle driver. And Jacob Siler... He had to take some cattle all the way past Rockbridge in Virginia. And so my Paul, he hired me out. I went with this Mr. Siler all the way to Rockbridge. And then when we finished letting off the cattle and sold them and everything like that, while well, he gave me the balance of what I was owed. And then he told me he'd give me a little bit extra if I'd go ahead and stay on and work for him a little bit more. But being young and dumb at the time, I wanted to go ahead and head on back home. I thought often of it and wished badly enough to be there. But he figured that advance payment that he had given me was his way of saying, you're mine now, but I wasn't going to stand for it. So one night, I finally determined to go ahead and leave Mr. Siler. And in the middle of the night, when there was a blizzard going on, I actually crept outside of his house, and I made my way up to the main road and finally took off down to where I stumbled across this party of wagoners that was down the main road. And when they found me, they were surprised that I was even alive, for the snow was falling down so hard that it covered up my tracks just as fast as I made them. And I told them my whole story, and I told them how I wanted to go back home. Well, they took pity upon me, and they let me ride with them. But it was slow going in them wagons. And if you get to a point to where you can go ahead and count the rotations of the wheel, well, my goodness, that'd be enough to drive any man crazy. So I went ahead and told them wagoners that I was determined to set off my own hook. And they took up a little pot for me, about $3 worth, and then I set off on my own until finally I come on back to the tavern, where I stayed with Mom and Paul until I was about eh, 13, 14 years old. And then there's this idiot who come through the neighborhood, 
and his name was Benjamin Kitchen. Uh, he was a school teacher, and he made it known throughout the neighborhood that he was going to establish a schoolhouse. Now, some folks might find it astonishing that at the age of, you know, 13, 14 years old, that a fellow doesn't have half an education yet. But that was the way it was with me. So my Paul, he saved up enough money for me and my brothers to actually go to Benjamin Kitchen's schoolhouse. Well, I went there and had maybe about three solid days of education before I got into a fight with this fellow who was a bully down there. And see, he'd been pestering me and a few other of the kids that was hanging in and around that schoolhouse. So I waited until after school was out, and I snuck on down the road where I know he had to come by to go home. And when he come down my way, I jumped out of the brush, and I led him to him like a panther. And when I did, I beat him black and blue, and I said, you're going to stop messing with me and everybody else in the schoolhouse. And so help me God, if I ever have to deal with you again, it's going to be a lot worse than what it was before. Well, he got up, and he took off running down the road, but it was towards the schoolhouse. And right then and there, I know that I'd made a mistake, for he was going to tell Master Kitchen. Well, I know I couldn't go back to the schoolhouse then because if I did, I was going to get a whipping from the master. So I come up with this idea to go ahead. Every day we went to school, I'd head on down with my brothers until he's out of sight of the tavern, and then I'd dive off into the woods and just play truant the whole time, and I was just exploring, fishing, you name it. And then at the end of the day, I'd meet up with my brothers on the road, and we'd walk back up to the tavern, and I pretended like I was at school the whole time. But finally, Master Kitchen, he sent home a note with my brothers one day, and he asked me why I hadn't been at school. Well, when I got to the tavern door, my Paul, he was standing there, and he looked mighty wrathy. Probably had a few more horns of whiskey as it was good for him, too. And he had a note in one hand and a hickory switch in the other. And he asked me why it was that I hadn't been at school for the past few days. Well, I know my goose was cooked, so I went ahead and told him the whole thing. I told him about the fight with the boy, and I told him about the thought of the whipping that come to mind from Master Kitchen, and how I didn't look forward to it, and I didn't want to get whipped by him. And my Paul, he told me, he said, well, don't you worry about the whipping that you're going to get there. Worry about the one you're going to get here if you don't go back to school the next day. And, you know, I'm sure you probably had this, sir, and I would say almost every person has at one point in their life, they have this moment of pure idiocy where they tell their parents no well that's exactly what i did because my paul told me to go back to school the next day or i was going to get a whipping and i told him no sir i shan't that never works and he oh let me tell you something it don't at all he lit out after me with that hickory switch and soon we was running down the road now to our top speed close to bursting our boilers but mind you I wouldn't run down the schoolhouse road, for I was trying to get far tether away from the schoolhouse and my paw as possible. And I waited till I got out of sight of him, and I jumped off onto the side of the road and hid in the brush. And that's when I knowed I couldn't go back home. Because if I did, I'd get a whipping from him, and then I'd get a whipping from the master. So I found my way wandering through the woods until I come up to my neighbor, Jesse Cheek, who was getting ready to drive a herd of cattle. So I hired on and told him that I'd work for him until we got to where we needed to go, and once we sold the cattle, he could pay me, and all was fair. And once we got there and sold the cattle, and I got my fair share of the money, well, I didn't want to go back home. Now, mind you, I still wanted to go back home. I, I missed my family. But when I thought about home and how badly I wanted to be there, why, the thought of the whipping comes slapped down on top of everything, and I know that I couldn't go back. So you so, actually didn't go back. 
I did not go back, no sir, not one bit. I wasn't about to get my hide tanned for nobody. So how long were you gone? And that's when, two years, two years I was gone. I worked at odd jobs. I, I was a wagoner. I did some odd jobs for this one old man. I worked as a hatter at one point, and at one point I almost actually became a cabin boy on a voyage to London. I feel like that's the only time in your life that you ever ran from a fight. I would honestly probably say so, sir. Yeah. So what are you going to do next? Are you, I mean, are you, what year is it in your time, by the way? Well, it's 1835. Okay. What month is it? September. Okay. So at this point, you, okay, let me see if I got this right. You ran for Congress and lost, then ran again and won, and then ran again and won again, and then you lost, and then you won again. Is that correct? Well, and then I lost my last bid to re-election. Right, and then you lost the last one. Now, I understand when you lost, you had some pretty strong things to say. I don't know if it's true what I've heard, but I'd like to hear your side of it. Well, sir, I simply told my constituents that if they had seen fit to elect a man with a temper toe to succeed me, that they may all go to hell, and I'll go to Texas. And they said, well, that's fine. You can go to hell or to Texas. And I said, well, naturally not wanting to be a coward, I'll take Texas. So is that what you're going to do now? Are you going to go to Texas? Well, I am too, yes, sir. As a matter of fact, I do. I figured that Tennessee's played out for me. I feel like politicking and being a congressman and the like, they've played out for me as well. More than that, there's another fellow in the running to become the next president after Jackson. And if he gets elected, I don't want nothing to do with the country if he does. For he stands upon pretty much the same platform as Jackson does. Oh, just what you need is Andrew Jackson's brother to take over. I mean, not really his brother. Uh, Just about. Yeah. (laughs) So why would you go to Texas? What is going on in Texas right now? Not much. I've heard there's some folks that have been fighting back and forth with the government, but I don't think that's going to come to too much. You know, it seems to be one of them one-off rebellions, and then afterwards I can, you know, just go in there easy as you please and take my claim. And I've been told by friend of mine who was also a former congressman, Sam Houston, I've been told by him that if I was to go down to Texas and sign the oath for militia duty, I'd receive 640 acres of my own choosing. Well, I figure I got the best end of the deal because if any rebellion that's going on down there is already crushed by the time I get down there, why, heck, I could just sign on for the oath of militia duty and sit around twiddling my thumbs so I can receive the 640 acres. And I've heard it is some of the best land and the best prospects for health you ever saw. Well, that sounds wonderful. So you know Sam Houston? Yes, sir, I do. Wow. Fought with him at the Battle of Talladega, as a matter of fact. What kind of man is he? Well, I'll tell you, he's one of them rare, what you'd call the tiger breed. The Battle of Talladega, he went ahead and he fought like you wouldn't believe. He fought like a wildcat that was cornered. But even more so at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, which I was not a part of, but I heard tell of his doings, especially firsthand when I asked him about the Creek War later on when we was reunited up there in the floors of Congress just talking old times. Well, he told me that when he actually tried to mount the fortress walls at Horseshoe Bend, that he received an arrow through his arm, and he fell off the Palisade Wall. And then when the doctors had removed the arrow from his arm and bandaged it up while he switched his sword to his other arm 
and then he took off charging the palisade with his men again. That's when he come up there, and he received an arrow through his leg. And finally, that was what done him for, because then he realized he couldn't do nothing worthwhile, so he had to actually sit there at the back of the battle until it was all over with. Well, I'll tell you, one thing about war is you find out who the real men are. Indeed. Because meanwhile, Jackson, he's sitting there acting like he's all fierce, and he's been sitting there at the backside of things almost the whole time. I think the closest he ever come to any kind of fighting was Horseshoe Bend, where that one creek about tomahawked his head in, and maybe New Orleans, you know. Of course, he was on the backside of the lines giving orders, so I don't reckon that right of the counts. Have you heard the name Santa Ana? Santa Ana. Santa Ana. Well... I did hear tell of some fella called Santa Ana. I think he's called the Presi- Presidente or President, something like that down there in Mexico. Yeah. They say yeah. he's real mad at this whole uprising or whatever that's going on, but I don't think too much will come of it. I think it's just a little political squabble. But some folks rebel, put it down, and then afterwards everybody's happy. Well, hopefully that's what happens. You get down to Texas and – Get your piece of land. How long do you think it would take before your wife would follow you down there, Elizabeth? Well, first thing I got to do is get down there and sign the oath of militia duty. And I'd say I'd probably hold off on telling them to come down until after my six months is up. That way I don't have to be in the militia anymore. I don't have to worry about no more fighting. And then I can go ahead and choose my own land, all 640 acres of it. Then once I get that set up and get a house set up, I'll go ahead and invite them on down here. You need to draw a picture of yourself and give it to Elizabeth, because as much as you're away, she's going to forget what you look like. Well, I'm not very good at drawing. (laughs) I struggle enough with writing my own name as it is. But I will say that there has been a fella who did a portrait of me back while I was in Congress. His name is uh, Chapman, and he did a portrait of me, which is probably the best likeness I've ever seen done of me or anybody else, quite honestly. Of course, I might be a bit biased, but he's got a whole portrait painted up of me wearing hunting clothes and got hunting dogs with me and everything like that. So if Elizabeth wants to see me bad enough, well, she can try and get a hold of that picture there and take a look at it and remember what I look like. Well, I got to tell you, Mr. Crockett, I have learned. By the way, do you prefer to be called David or Davey or do you prefer Mr. Crockett? Uh, David, if, if you will, please. See, I'm actually very proud about that name. That name was given to me by my Paul, John Crockett. His Paul before him was David. He was, his name was David Crockett. And when they moved down into what's now Rogersville, Tennessee, during the war for independence against the British, my Paul, he was gone at the time fighting in the war. But in 1777, the Cherokees and potentially some Creeks, while they had actually allied themselves with the British during the War for Independence. And they actually attacked Rogersville, and my grandpa's cabin was one of the places that got burnt up. And then engines, they went ahead and they killed my grandma, my grandpa, and killed some of my brothers and sisters as well. Wow. Now, I told you, of course, my Paul, he was actually gone fighting the British. Right. But two of my uncles, they escaped unharmed and i say unharmed but one of my uncles he was shot through the arm and he managed to escape off into the darkness and my other uncle he was deaf and dumb and so the cherokees they thought he was big medicine thought he might have had some kind of connection with the spirits so they went ahead and 
kept him as captive, didn't want to offend the spirits by killing someone like that. And he remained there until, I want to say about the time I was 18 year old. And that's when we actually found him. And we purchased him back at a hefty ransom. So he was there for more than 10 years? More than 10 years, yes, sir. Well, I'll tell you what. Thank God you wrote about your story because there is sure a lot in your life that, that has happened. And i got to tell you, during this conversation, there are two things that I have learned. And number one is that you nailed it right at the beginning, and that is roosters don't crow at 6 a.m. They go nonstop. They, for whatever reason, <laughs> they just keep going and going. So I believe you on that now. But the second thing that I've learned is that you are a very principled man, and the Congress now and the Senate now needs more people like you. And, and I just appreciate the position that you've had trying to make the country better because you are a very principled man. And I thank you for what you've done and your story, and I thank you so much for this time. Well, thank you, sir. I do appreciate it, and it's, it's nice to be thought well of by other people. Well, I hope everything that happens next goes your way. Whatever happens when I head down to Texas, I reckon it's in the hands of Providence. But I leave this for others when I'm dead. Be sure you're right and go ahead. There you go. Davy Crockett lived a good life. He fought for what he believed in, wrote books, went on wild adventures, and was respected and loved and spent a lot of time with the animals outdoors and indoors. It should be no surprise that such a moral man who seemed to always have a rifle nearby would die using that rifle to fight for someone else. After recruiting volunteers to join him in Texas, he ended up fighting to the death with other giants of history like James Bowie and William Travis. Their showdown with Santa Ana's Mexican army would immortalize the words, Remember the Alamo. Thanks for listening to the Calling History Podcast. There's a lot more coming, so don't forget to subscribe now. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History. History.